and I'm happy that you are here. We are in part two of our series titled Uncertainty Ahead. And I want to continue to emphasize this. All times are uncertain. Unless you have full control over every variable in your life, then life is certain. But every aspect of life is uncertain. But something that we keep on seeing in headline news is uh, these are times of uncertain times of uncertainty. All times of, are, are times of uncertainty. Now we're just humbled enough to admit that these are times of uncertainty. Now we can say with confidence these are times of uncertainty. We have been humbled enough due to the pandemic to be able to say that these are truly times of uncertainty. If we are in the midst of times of uncertainty, it requires us to pursue the one who is certain. If we are in times of uncertainty, then it does require for us to embrace the one who is certain. This has to be the natural process, or at least question, who is this divine being? Who is the one who is the definition of certainty? And, and, I, and I, I say this a lot, but this has to be the centerpiece of our worldview of Christianity. The reason why Jesus is the centerpiece of why or how we should approach times of uncertainty, that if anyone predicts his own death, and is documented by such a wide array of people around him, he overcomes death and leaves the tomb empty and redefines death, and then has breakfast on the beach the next day with his disciples, Man, I go with whatever he says. This is why the central figure of how we approach times of uncertainty is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked, when we talked about uncertainty, we talked about that expressing, like, if, if I asked you, who, are you grateful? Everyone would say, yeah, 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 I'm grateful. I'm, maybe there's times that are difficult. There's no question you are going through a stressful time, there are times of anxiety. There are a lot of uncertainties. But if I ask you, are you grateful? You can find a couple of things maybe you are grateful for. But not expressing that does not empower you or does not fuel any type of a relationship. Unexpressed gratitude in my marriage does not, mean I, does not strengthen my relationship or my marriage. But expressed gratitude, living a life of gratitude, just from a psychological perspective, just empowers me and, and, and aids me to get through times of uncertainty as we talked about having a spirit or a heart of gratitude. What I would love to talk about today is death. Yeah, this just is a nice fluffy talk to make you feel nice and warm and cozy this morning as we talk about death. The mindset of a first century Christian is they had no problem talking about death. It was never taboo. They embraced it. To the point that the prayers of the first century church were rooted in talking about death in a very healthy way. And, and to, to see the spirit of first century prayers, the church gives us something that has lasted for centuries, is something called the Egbeya, which is a Coptic word saying this is called the Book of Hours, which guides us in prayer. But let's face it, when you and I pray, when times are difficult and we need clarity, or we need to get through something we kind of just throw up a prayer, God, uh, uh, help me, like, uh, you, know, you know, bless me. We, we, we have a hard time knowing what to say, let's face it. That's why sometimes our prayers, you know, are 13 seconds, or they're very short because we just don't know what to say. The church holds our hand and guides us and to help us to know what we should pray about because we all struggle on what to pray about. So the church, through her wisdom throughout the centuries, has guided us on knowing what to pray about. Death, 
No one wants to like talk about it. Maybe we don't want to think about it. But the church puts it in the forefront of our mind, actually, for us to embrace and for us to, 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 to talk about death in a very healthy way. Every evening in, in this guided book of prayer called the Agbeim, by the way, let me, this, this is a no-shame plug. You can get this uh, in the connection table upstairs if you, you want your own personal Agbeya, or you can find the audio of this online just by Googling it. But anyway, going past the plug. If I look at the evening prayers, we clearly, the first century church, the Orthodox church, talks about death in a very clear way. Let me just give you one example of what we say about death. With a compassionate eye, O Lord, Look at my weakness, for shortly my life will end. Right? You, you and I know our life will end at some point. When that is, who knows? But we know our life will end. But the church brings that prayer up to the forefront for us to verbalize this. With a compassionate eye, O Lord, look at my weakness, for shortly my life will end. And in my deeds I shall have no salvation. In my deeds, I shall have no salvation. Time out. Doesn't that, that's, that's, does not, like, how does that make any sense? In my deeds, I shall find no salvation. Do you know what you and I do when we want to be a really good person and pat ourselves on the back, saying, yeah, I'm a good Christian, I'm a good person, I'm a good boy. What do we do? We do something nice. Maybe we give money to this organization. Maybe we open the door for somebody. Maybe we help somebody out. Maybe we, do, we, we, we give in this way to make us feel good about ourselves. But we're saying... It, what will save us, what will bring us to eternity, is not necessarily what we do, but who is settling inside our hearts? Who are we pursuing holistically? So we're saying, in my deeds, I shall have no salvation. It's not just based on what I do. It's something deeper than that. Therefore, I beseech you, O Lord, with a merciful eye, look at my weakness, look at my humility, look at my poverty, Look at my sojourn and save me. Maybe this is, this, I, I take this prayer and go along with me. Three points come to mind. Here's point number one. My sojourn is my visit. We are sojourners in this place, in this temporal world. Every worldview is curious, what is the age to come? What happens after my last breath? Every worldview ponders on that question. So our, the Christian worldview is we understand that my sojourn is my visit. I'm visiting this temporal world. I'm here for a mission. I'm here equipped with certain gifts, and I'm here to, to, to plant a seed in this world. That, that's a fact for every single human being that has a pulse. My sojourn is my visit. I'm here for a temporal, for temporal time. When, does it, when it comes to my birth, when it ends, that's up to God. But I have a mission to accomplish. Every single person in this room has a mission to accomplish. My sojourn, your sojourn, is your visit. Point number two. I have a role in my visit. I'm here for a visit. I have a role in my visit. My role is executed knowing I am a sojourner. My role is executed knowing I am a sojourner. Leadership talks, and even to be in self-motivating talks and books like this, they say one mindset that's needed for you to be successful is to work with the end in mind. Work with the end in mind. That's one of the points in the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Work with the end in mind. 
So if we have a clear view of the end, this determines how I make life decisions now. If I have a clear view of the end in mind, this affects how I make life decisions right now. Many leadership talks will throw out this nice word, stewardship, stewardship, to be a steward leader or some variation of a steward or stewardship, some variation of that word. I want to, maybe it's a word that we don't come across very much. Maybe some of us, it sounds like a very churchy word and we don't even understand what it really means to be a steward. I want us to understand historically what does the word steward mean. Steward means is that I have a authority to represent the king. So if I look at just from a medieval time, a steward is somebody who represents the king and has the authority of the king to represent the king and other capacities out in the kingdom. That's, that's, the, that's the role of a steward. You and I are titled to be stewards. We are representing someone who is bigger than us. But the only way for us to embrace our stewardship is for us to have clarity on who are we a steward of. The authority that you and I have comes from the ultimate authority of how we manage times of uncertainty, which all times are, but how do I manage times of uncertainty? It's for me to understand where my ultimate authority comes from. Once I have clarity on that, then this empowers me to execute the, the, the authority and the leadership and the different roles that you have. If we all understand that we are sojourners and just tourists visiting this world, we all we understand that we have a mission in this world. And regardless of how long that is, we are called and we have been entrusted with, with certain gifts and talents and resources to make an impact in this world. This sounds silly, but go along with me. You and I don't have anything. We don't have anything. We are responsible to what we have been given. I don't have a ministry. I don't have finances. I have been given this, and I have been entrusted to be responsible for what I have been given. Next point. You and I don't have people. I don't have a wife. I do, but you know what I mean. Just go along with me. I don't have a kid. I have people, but I am responsible to the people in my life. There's a difference. Again, I touched on this in the liturgy sermon today. There's nothing wrong with saying, I have a wife. But I have been entrusted with this sacrament. But in order for me to, to, to empower this, this sacrament of matrimony, I have to die to myself in order to empower. I have to submit to her and ultimately to God in order for me to invest in this marriage. So I, I, I don't have a marriage. I don't have a wife. I have been in, I'm responsible for this sacrament that I have been entrusted with. I don't have a kid. I, I do, but go along with me. I'm saying there's something wrong talking about. I'm not telling you to sound churchy when you're talking. Don't, don't tell me oh, I don't have a kid. No, you have a kid. I have a kid. But I'm saying I am I'm responsible for this life. However many days or years God wants to give her, I am entrusted with that responsibility. She has a mission. I have a responsibility to cheer her and to get, for her to have clarity on what that mission is. But whenever God wants to say, okay, your stewardship is over, okay, great. But she has a mission. You and I don't have anything. We don't have people. We are responsible for the things we have been entrusted with and for the people in our lives. I want to make this more clear. This was illustrated and made clear through the person of God, through Jesus. But I actually want to illustrate this through an ancient Jewish text. And what I want to share is from the year 580 BC from a king named Nebuchadnezzar. 
which is a, a, a mouthful of a name. This is an ancient um, uh, tablet uh, showing the depiction of King Nebuchadnezzar. This guy, if you ask any historian, in the year 580, he was at the top of being the, the epitome of political power and military power. Like he was at the top of his game and his kingdom was extremely powerful in the year 580 AD to the point that he would invade Jerusalem, which is a, a, a big city at the time, and took the finest people of Jerusalem and their items and their possessions and controlled them. And for those who are familiar with the story of the three youth or the three men that were kept captive by Nebuchadnezzar, their names were also funny names, Sidrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, Jesus, that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar took them captive uh, so he was at, at the, 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 the height of his game right here in Nebuchadnezzar, being the most uh, powerful political and military leader of his time. At his top of his game, and when, when you and I are successful, let's face it, we lose clarity on what we have been given. When we do reach success in your career and finances, another aspect of your life. We lose sight of where that came from. We fall into that trap. Man, I worked hard. I went to school. This is mine. This is my, my, my whatever. Fill in the blank. We lose sight. Nebuchadnezzar was not any different. He had a dream. This is what the recording we have from, from the book of Daniel chapter 4. I, it's so unique. Actually, I need to find out why. Why this chapter was the only chapter written from the first person of King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know, but anyway. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content, prosperous. I got it all, man. I had a dream that made me afraid. So the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had it's kind of weird, but he had this dream where there was this massive tree, huge canopy, and under the tree were just tons of, of plants and animals. And then a voice came to him that, that saying the tree must be cut down. But this tree was, 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 was giving security and safety to all the plants and animals that were under this tree, under the canopy. But a voice came in his dream saying the tree must be cut down. So, of course, Nebuchadnezzar woke up from the dream very concerned. Like, what on earth does this dream mean? We continue. That this is part of his dream. Let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants and the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass for him. So he's having this dream of him Nebuchadnezzar being the owner of this tree and this tree being cut down and then this man being drenched with being being rained upon he lost his security being covered let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth let his mind be changed to that of a man let him basically go psycho and have a mind of an animal so obviously he wakes up highly concerned so you're the king you have people that interpret dreams for a living so King Nebuchadnezzar asks his, his people in his, in his royal palace, can you explain, like, this is my dream. Explain it. Interpret it for me. This is your job. Maybe they knew the interpretation. Maybe they didn't because they hated to admit to the king what the dream was all about. So the king asked another, uh, 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 one of, somebody he could trust, he asked Daniel, Daniel, interpret this dream for me. What does this dream? I, here's what happened. There's a tree, and I got broken down, and, I, and then the, the person who owned the tree ended up becoming psychotic. 
explain this dream or give me the interpretation. King Daniel says, The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom, your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, will be restored to you. And when you acknowledge that heaven rules, not you, King Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. And you can just imagine, you're Daniel, you're coming to the king, interpreting his dream, and you're coming as an advisor to the king. Maybe he takes one step back as he tells the king, renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel's telling him, king, you got it all. You're wealthy. But in order for you to continue to have prosperity, renounce your sins, and leverage what you have been given to help the oppressed. Leverage your leadership, your resources, your manpower to help the oppressed. Then maybe you will continue to be prosperous. You and I can relate to this. Maybe we get a, a, a little nudge from a family, from a friend, from, from another resource. And we hear, like, yeah, 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 but they don't understand my life. They don't get it. Well, maybe we have a, a little nudge for us to change some aspect of our life. But we justify it. No, they don't understand where I'm coming from. They don't understand me. And we kind of ignore it. We've all been there. So, you're the king. A, an advisor comes to you and says, renounce your sins and, and leverage your power to, to help others. The king, like any of us would do, brushed it off for 12 months. Didn't take the advice of Daniel. Continues. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon man I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, the Bukhanazar's lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. For, I don't, I don't know if there's any mental health counselors. There is a, a, a mental health disorder. I want to make sure I get this right. Zoanthropy. Zoanthropy is a mental illness when you think you are an animal. This is a, a, this is a, a clinical diagnosis. Zoanthropy. This is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. He lost it. He lost it. Because he looked at what he had and said, man, I built all this. I have all this. Man, look what I did. And he lost sight. Twelve months go by for him to regain clarity. He gains no clarity. And then a voice comes to him, and he loses it all. And he loses his mind. He loses his mind. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his, air, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. 
I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. What allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to feel, to, for him, his sanity to be restored, for him to have clarity on his role as a leader, is that he understood what I have been given, I have been entrusted with. And he leveraged his power to help the oppressed. And what were the words that were coming from his mouth? Was a doxology. Doxology is just a fancy word of him giving praise to God. You and I are created to be, you ready? Doxological beings. Doxological beings. We are designed to give glory and honor and worth, not to us, but to the one who has our lives in his hand. We are created to be a doxology. This is why in our ancient tradition of prayers in the first century church, count how many times we say glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever. How many times do we give glory and honor to him? Don't count for real because you'll lose count. But I'm saying that this is the essence of, of the structure of our prayers is rotated around that. If we have clarity of giving a doxology to God, then we have clarity of our leadership, of our influence, of our roles in our world and, and the responsibilities that you have been given. But the second we start saying, this is me, look what I did, man, I got there, all this. Nobody else understands me. This is where we will lose sight of who we are and whose we are. If we have clarity on our leadership, if we have clarity on our influence, we are less likely to spend it on ourselves. If we have clarity on our roles, we are less likely to spend it on ourselves because we know that you and I are not the end. The centrality for us in times of uncertainty, which are all times, is for us to abide in the one who is certain. In our ancient prayers, in our pre-denominational faith, something that we pray every liturgy as we come to celebrate the Eucharist, is we say, manage our lives as deemed fit. God, manage my life as you deemed fit. Not my interpretation of how my life should be managed, but you manage my life as deemed fit. Because I know that I belong to you. I have been entrusted with the responsibility because I am a sojourner in this world. I'm a tourist in this world. All this will end, but I have a divine responsibility. Manage my life as you seemed fit, not my version. Something that is chanted or, or said multiple times in liturgical services in the ancient faith, in the Orthodox Church, is that we come, we offer bread and wine. We offer bread and wine. And we say, we offer unto you, God, not what I cooked, not what I baked, or what we're bringing this morning. We offer unto you what is yours. We offer unto you what is already yours. 
This bread, this dough, this, this is already yours. We're giving it to you for you to take ownership of it and for you to transform it. And for me to partner with you, God, for this to give life. What do you offer to God and for you to say, I offer this unto you? For everything, concerning everything and everything. This is not mine. I have been entrusted with this and I offer it to you. What aspect of our lives, especially in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of uncertainty, we want to hold on to things tighter. We hold on to things tighter. This is why our form of prayer is, is open hands like this. I offer unto you what is yours. What I have is just what I have been entrusted with. I'm renting what I have been given. I'm renting what I have been given. I'm renting this body, so I've been entrusted to take care of my physical health. I've been entrusted with my mental health. I have to take care of it. What am I doing to, 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 be, to, to take care of what I have been given? I'm renting this. I have been entrusted with, with, with great financial health. What am I doing? That I, what do I have been entrusted with? We offer unto you what is yours. This is stewardship. This is steward leadership. And if we move in this direction, in times of uncertainty, then I have a clear view that the end will come at some point. But it's not um, a daunting view of the end. No. Then I'm, once I have the end in mind, then that gives me clarity on how I should approach everything else. Because I know there's more to life than this. This is a four-part series for us to assess four principles that we can apply and execute in times of uncertainty, which again are all times are uncertain. We said having a, a mindset of gratitude and how that creates clarity for me to move forward in times of uncertainty. I want us for this week to us to look at what you have been given, regardless if you view it as very little or you view it as very much. You have been given relationships, maybe finances, a career, you have, or maybe a ministry for those who are in leadership roles in the church. You have been entrusted. Do you say that this is mine or you offer it because it already belongs to him in the first place? What do you offer to him? And what do you view as it ultimately being him? Or what are some things maybe you hold on to a little bit tighter? What I want us to do is I want us, to, when we stand up in a minute, to pray. If you've never prayed like this, I encourage you to pray like this. Again, you can pray, you can, you can lay down, you can do jumping jacks, you can do like, I don't care, it doesn't matter how you pray. But an ancient form of prayer is for us to put our hands like this. This is saying, whatever I have, I offer to you. Whoever I am, I give to you. But I, I know that I am worthy to be a child of yours. And I have been entrusted with amazing things. Maybe I don't see that right now. Maybe I don't have clarity on the resources that I have been given. Maybe I can't even stand the relationships that I have right now. But I have been entrusted with this. And I offer that to you. For who I am, I belong to you. So even if you've never prayed like this, I encourage you to just stand before the presence of your Heavenly Father. Even if it's hard for you to see what do you offer to God. I encourage you just to stand like this. And to offer to Him who you are. Offer to him this pain, this issue, this uncertainty. Where we find life is, where, is when we pursue the one who is certain, the one who redefined what death is in order for us to have life.
Let us stand and pray together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we all live in a world of us to take ownership of everything we have. That this is my career, my finances, my job, my whatever. Every single one of us fall into that trap, if we are aware of it or not. But just as King Nebuchadnezzar lost sight of what he has been given, and he had to learn the hard way, Lord, we don't want us to be hard-headed and for you, for you to give us a hard lesson. We want to approach what we have been given in this world with a clear view for us to know that we have been entrusted with so much. And what we have and who we are is what we offer unto you. Through the prayers of your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. We will do part three next Saturday, next Sunday, Sunday, Sunday at 1130.